Coming to you from the studios at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C., I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time we've got microphones in our faces and you're listening in. And this month, we welcome two guests, one in studio, one on the phone. They are both leaders of significant initiative called Church Clarity. George McHale is the former evangelical multi-site megachurch executive pastor, say that seven times fast, huh, and executive director of Church Clarity. There's actually, I'm sure, a story in that, and I'm sure we're going to hear it. And then Sarah New is the New York-based freelance writer, a leader at Forefront Church in Brooklyn, and Sarah co-organizes Queer Communion and was one of the co-founders of Church Clarity. She serves as their digital organizer. Sarah and George, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having us. I've asked Sarah and George to come talk with us on Freedom Road, because in the midst of a moment when it feels like the church is ripping at the seams over issues of LGBTQ inclusion, Church Clarity is calling for the top influential churches across the country to be clear about their policies of diversity, equity, and inclusion. They're mostly focused on LGBTQ inclusion and women's leadership. They also actually are beginning to branch into racial equity as well. And that was actually one of the plans from the very beginning. These are areas where there's a lack of clarity and that lack of clarity can cause harm. We would love to hear your thoughts as well. Tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us and keep sharing the podcast with your friends and your networks because we love that. And we also love, 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 love the conversations that are kind of bubbling up on Twitter. So let us know what you think. And we love the back and forth. So just keep it coming. Okay. So Sarah, George, can we talk here? Yeah. Can we talk here? Okay, let's talk here. So I hear church clarity and I think pain. Hmm. That's literally what comes to mind for me. I think church split. That's what I think when I think church clarity. And it's funny because I think that I didn't used to think that, but in recent days, I mean, my own denomination has been going through it. We just saw the UMC go through it. I think of what just happened at the UMC as the second largest Protestant denomination in the world after the Southern Baptist Convention made a decision to double down on its policies to ban openly LGBTQ people from leadership and to ban same-sex marriage, right? And in the interest of modeling clarity, I want to share with you where I've landed on this because I know I'm going to be asked and how I got there, okay? All right. So, One of the chapters in my second book ever, um, Left, Right, and Christ, Evangelical Faith and Politics, 
wrestled with the issue of same-sex marriage. Now, let me tell you, I did not want to write that chapter. I didn't want, I didn't want to touch it. I wanted to, I, I literally said, I don't think we should have a chapter on this in the book. And the book was supposed to be wrestling over the seven major issues that evangelicals needed to deal with in order to be relevant in the 21st century. Like that was what the book, and I was saying, no, 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 let's not, let's not even touch that, which is kind of ridiculous, right? Because you kind of have to, you have to go there. So I went there because it was in the book contract. <laughs> that, that's why I power did it. Of lawyers. The power of lawyers. That's exactly right. No, but I'll tell you what, it actually, it was, I, I really was, I went in with fear and trembling um, and it was about 2010. So it was before the Supreme Court ruling that made same-sex marriage, um, legalized it throughout the land. And I did not know as I was entering into the writing of that chapter, what I, what I thought. I didn't know, but here's the thing, even if I decided what I thought, I was deathly afraid to voice what I thought. Hmm. Why? Because I'm an evangelical. And it was kind of a third rail in the evangelical world. To think the wrong thing here could mean ostracism from my evangelical friends, my community, my networks. It could mean not getting speaking gigs. Like It could mean all of that. And so I feared clarity. So I get that. I get the fear of clarity. I understand it. And as I dove into the research, I truly did not know where I was going to land. So what my process was that I studied the scriptures. I studied history of marriage in the Hebrew culture, um, history of marriage in the church, history of marriage in American law. I finally interviewed people in the LGBTQ community. And in the end, I came to one firm conviction. That firm conviction was anything less than full inclusion of LGBTQ community in the institution of marriage in the U.S. sets up a two-tiered system of citizenship. Yep. And so there, and it fails to affirm the full image of God and the full humanity and denies the full protection of the law to a significant percentage of the U.S. population. And quite honestly, I think a significant percentage is one. Right. We can't deny citizenship to even one person or full citizenship to even one, because just like Dr. King said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Something I appreciate about your project is that you're not trying to push anybody to adopt a particular position. You are only asking for clarity on that position, on the position they have. And that, what I love about it is that it recognizes and it affirms the reality that people have to have their own process. They have to have, I had a process. That was my, like my book project forced me to have a process and that process led me to where I have landed. Now to you, how about you? What is your story? What is it that brought you into this work? I'm going to pitch that first to Sarah because I'm looking at her right now and we're looking in the eye and, and then George, I want you to pipe in. Yeah. I mean, I think when you're a queer person, the options to be clear or not clear are there is almost not a choice if that makes sense like your life <laughs> is a policy statement potentially yeah. just walking around asking if you can do this can you lead can you um you know participate or what have you. you you know i think my particular entrance into church clarity itself 
began actually not through my capacity as like a queer person in the church, but as a journalist. So I was reporting an article for Sojourners on oh, wow. profiling four different gay or bi evangelicals on why they choose to stay or leave their non stay or leave um, their non affirming churches. Okay, and so two did and two didn't, and all of them for all four churches, I contacted and asked them to comment on the record whether it was true or not that they had such policies that prevented them from taking communion and bringing up members or worship, you know, leaders, what have you, mm-hmm. and. One said no comment, two did not get back to me, and one did get back to me, and we talked on the phone, and halfway through me just trying to get, tell me yes or no, whether you know LGBT people can serve on the worship team, can immediately lead members, I realized that he was only talking to me on the premise that the church would be anonymous. When he found out that I was going to name the church, he got really angry at me, and I was, you know, I'm not here to get into a theological fight over who I declare is important. I'm just trying to say, is the inter- is this church attendee who I have on the record lying when he says he cannot be a member, you know, and could not get a direct yes or no answer because I was going to use the church's name on the record. So he gave me some canned paragraph response that this is the only thing I will allow you to say. Wow. And it was a very, I thought I kind of knew church politics a little bit. My dad's a kind of missionary pastor, more from Malaysia, so less in American context. Wow. But I was still a little shocked to be like, this is, there's something unhealthy here. And he kept being like, how is it a loving thing to do to draw black and white lines over who's in and who's out, pointing the blame at me for <laughs> dividing really people? <laughs> yeah. what, really? Wait, 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 <laughs> wait, wait. A little like a mind jujitsu move. <laughs> yeah. Wait, can I just like yeah. just stop? Let's just sure. pause there for yeah. a second. So, so what he's saying is that he, he said to you, why... Or he said it's unjust or not right to draw clear lines, black and white lines in the sand, who's in and who's out. Yet in his own church, apparently there were lines being drawn for LGBTQ inclusion or not. And I think maybe in his head... Because they didn't maybe have it like written out as like a PDF that you put on a website. Right. He was like, we just have conversations. And that's a common line we hear a lot. You know, so-and-so chose not to pursue worship ministry because he knew if he did, we would have to have a conversation about, you know, his choices or his lifestyle, what have you. Yeah. So it's just like, you just cut the bullshit. You know, like, what's going on here? <laughs> Go uh, on, that's fine. <laughs> and so it was kind of a shocking experience in some ways, but I didn't, I didn't put it in the article so it didn't really fit into the narrative. Mm-hmm. And then when I talked to George... I pitched me this idea. I was like, oh, yeah, I just came from reporting this article. He found me through the article I wrote. It was this weird. Some guy tried to make me feel bad for calling him out on his division, you know, divisiveness and what have you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, we kind of joined forces from there. But I think this is, George, now your turn to tell your story of how you came up. All right, sure. Yeah, and so it was around that time when Sarah wrote that article, uh, Tim Schrader, who's the third co-founder of Church Clarity, and I were getting ready to just try to envision what this organization could look like and and uh, pitch it to Sarah, like you said, and invited her on. But really what led up to that moment was mm. my experience in professional ministry and, and, and at a church called Eastlake in Seattle, where, as you mentioned, I was the executive pastor. Yeah. We had just gone through a process of, of becoming more clear. And ultimately we landed on um, our church becoming open and affirming to the LGBTQ community and sort of mm. all culminated in a formal uh, announcement and a statement of inclusion that was very, very clear and direct. And, um, you know, it was was in Time magazine. And it was it was at the time, 2015, 
um, you know, we were one of the first large evangelical megachurches to make such a public statement. And so mm-hmm. in response to that, I think the inspiration for Church Clarity really started because what was happening was pastors were reaching out and basically like congratulating us like, oh, my God, this is amazing. So gl- glad you're evangelical pastors, yeah. evangelical. Wow. Evangelical pastors like from all over the, the world, really. Um, in, in addition to, you know, some of the death threats and things that, that we received, there, there were these weird random you got death threats. Uh, Ryan did. Ryan got a couple death threats. The lead pastor. I mean, he was his wow. it was his face that was featured in, in, the, in the spread of Time magazine. And um, we got a ton of hate mail in, in general. But, um, wow. you know, this was this was before the Supreme Court ruling by six months. It was yeah. a really diff- different time, even though it was only four years ago. But yeah, the the thing that was interesting was when these pastors would call and they would congratulate us, the they never seemed to follow that up. with any other sort of gesture publicly Uh so they were saying one thing to us but but not being clear you know they just go on lead their congregations the way that that, you know things things were going and so i went down this this road for several months maybe a year where i thought that the next thing to do the next right thing to do was try to convince as many pastors you know in my peer group who i could at that point like hey i went through this process of becoming more open in my theology and and eventually becoming affirming towards lgbtq people you should do that too that was kind of the energy and that became so exhausting and counterproductive after a while you start you start realizing what am i even doing why am i trying to convince people that's that's not how that wasn't how my process unfolded. It wasn't because mm. someone made some really compelling argument, right? How did your process, but like, I mean, seriously, what is it that even led you to have this process? Like, why did you have a process like that in a mega church? Most people would just not even touch it. It would, they would think it's a third rail. What led you to even gauge? Yeah. Yeah. So, so my, my Christian spiritual journey started in the Coptic Orthodox church. I, I was born in Egypt into the Christian minority there. Um, I was a deacon at a very young age, which, uh, in the Catholic context, I guess that would be like an altar boy, literally just, you know, sit up, sit up there with the robe and, and help the priest out. Um, but you know, went to church every Sunday for hours. Like church was a part of our, our, our life. Uh, that was, that was more than just the, you know, going and hearing a sermon. But, um, I think that when I, when I left the Coptic church, I had this in my family, my two sisters and I had this mini exodus where we really wanted to be a part of what our friends at school were a part of, which was, you know, young life and youth groups and the evangelical church that, that became really appealing. And so, um, it was probably 12 or 13 years old, left my, you know, rich faith heritage in, in pursuit of, I still wanted to keep my faith, you know, so it it had, it had the, the God element in it, but, um, but I went on this this journey of looking for something else because I didn't like the the rigidity and sort of the lack of what I what I saw at the time was almost like a lack of strategy because this is how my Enneagram three brain works. I'm like, what's the Coptic Church doing? Who are we? Even, so uh, true. Evangel- I'm a three too. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it's like we're we're just over here. What are, what are we even doing? We're just getting together and like praying every week. <laughs> Why aren't we trying to reach more people for the Lord? Oh my and gosh. That, yeah, and that, <laughs> you're too that was evangelical my, for I'm the Coptic Church. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe evangelicals are full of threes or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. We are. And that was so but that but I went I went sort of down that road and I was looking for all right, who's who who's gonna help sort of change the world, literally. Like let's do that. That's that seems to be our mandate. 
Um, but anyways, came came back around to just this undeniable reality that love is all relational, you know, and it's who you're doing life with that that is important. And um, and I could no longer just take what the church was telling me as as true anymore. So a lot of that had to do with really good leadership in our community. Ryan was someone who encouraged us to ask questions and always led from a place of vulnerability and um, curiosity. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, where, where we're at now, I think a, a lot of the work of church clarity for me is, is repentance. It's, it's trying to now be like, mm-hmm. instead of, instead of, Hey, leave your, um, old harmful theology behind it's, Hey, stop being unclear, stop being ambiguous with people because that's how people end up getting hurt ultimately. So, so that actually leads me to what do you mean when you say church clarity, either one of you can answer that. Well, for us, church clarity is about raising the standard of clarity in the church industry, particularly in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. For most churches, the front doors of the church are not only the physical doors, but the website. And so our standard of clarity is that you should be able to easily find a church's policy or stance for LGBTQ people and women leadership on the first few pages of a website. You shouldn't have to search. You just like casually browse about beliefs, values. That's it. You shouldn't have to look through blog posts or an archive. You shouldn't have to text your friend any word about this church. Look through Yelp. It's important for a lot of reasons. One, because I use this analogy. I think George maybe came up with this analogy. If a business said was hiring, like, you know, and it was like, apply for this position and you're a woman, you're you applied for it and you're in the job. It's great. And you're applying for a promotion. And they say, actually, we only allow men to be vice presidents. Ah. And then you're like, oh, why didn't you tell me when I you hired me? You know, I've invested all this time, this labor. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's almost like the standard should be even higher for churches because you're giving money to the church. It's not like the company's paying you. Wow, that's wow, that's deep. I didn't think of that. <laughs> and you're talking <laughs> about spiritual stakes. You know, if I if I get fired, I lose money. Um, but with the church, often it's your family. Um, when people get hurt by church, they sometimes walk away from God. So I think the stakes in some ways are a lot higher. We're talking about spiritual leaders as well. So wow. in many, many ways, and the other reason I think is that um, when policies are not on websites, it puts the burden on people to have email pastor for coffee, have third, fourth, fifth conversation with, you know, church staff person who refers you to this other staff person. And that's the reason why having clear policies just standardizes the process, reduce the burden off individuals, and it it forces the church staff to fully own it. Instead of it just being a pastoral conversation where like, you know, it's what I think, but I haven't talked to my elders about it. If you're going to put it on your website, it means you've talked to your elders about it. It means you've talked to the your congregation about it. So it forces the churches to do the due diligence of clarity. So in other words, like the picture that I'm getting, I'm very, very visual, right? So the picture that I'm getting is that when someone enters into the maze of a church, like the church community and life at that church, the way that structures in the church guide common life together, that if you are a queer or LGBTQ person, somebody from that community, you are going to enter that and not know how far into the organization you can go. And lack of clarity actually can cause like spiritual damage or emotional damage. It can just take up, it can eat up your life just trying to figure out where you stand in this community. Yeah. It really does come down to that. It's, it's, you're kind of always just waiting for the next shooter drop. It's all are welcome, you know, all are welcome here. Come as you are. 
and you know until you reach this unspoken limitation that we have that's that's constantly hanging over your head and so i i think that that's that's really the work that we're doing which by the way has only been possible thanks to recent technology so i think that's something that's very practical that we have to acknowledge church clarity exists as a technology platform and we're we're aggregating uh, data that previously wasn't able to be uh, shared and distributed in this way. And we really feel, feel as though that tool um, so far has become really powerful in helping people find a church that aligns with their values without having to, you know, constantly be wondering, or like Sarah said, without having to be the ones who have to go inquire over and over again, only to be given the runaround. Um, but as the database continues to grow, I think we're also trying to continue that that quest for 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 truth and trying to understand what even is the church? What are we doing? Who are we? What do we stand for? What like we're taking account at some level? You know, there's 350,000 churches just in America, and you know, we've only we've only had uh, 3,500 submitted, so about one percent there, uh, a little ways to go. But we're 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 trying to uncover. Like, what, what are we going to discover at the end of this? You know, people ask like, well, what's really the goal of clarity? <laughs> and it's so funny because it's like, no, no, no. The goal is just clarity and that's plenty hard enough. So let's just start there and see what happens. Let the chips fall where they may. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. Okay, everybody, imagine this. Imagine one bus, 40 women, three days, multiple encounters with the diverse stories of our foremothers' struggles to attain, protect, and maintain the right to vote. We're going to travel from Seneca Falls to New York City to Atlantic City and then D.C. And then we're going to spend one full day on Capitol Hill talking to our legislators about the need to protect women's right to vote. The Ruby Woo Pilgrimage is happening again this year, November 4 through 8 on Freedom Road. Space is limited and registration is closing soon. So apply today at freedomroad.us. So why clarity? and not inclusion or justice. I think it is connected to justice because I think clarity in some ways is fundamentally about harm reduction. So people are hurt by non-affirming and non-egalitarian policies for sure. And they're organizations that advocate to change those policies, those theologies. Mm -hmm. But we think there's like an extra hurt that there's not quite an organization fighting for that is caused by being unclear. So maybe a story could be helpful. Yeah, 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 please. Um, we like stories. We like stories. I, I hear, <laughs> I've heard that that's the case. You know, I'm trying to think there's so many stories, but there was a mother who went to Andy Stanley's church, North Point Ministries, which is the largest church potentially in the United States, wow. one of the satellite uh, branches. And her mother thought, this is a great place for bringing my kids because I've heard Pastor Stanley say on stage that this the church should be the safest place for young gay teenagers. I've heard Andy Stanley use gay couples as examples of volunteers who are leading in churches. And she didn't know at the time that her daughter was gay, but then her daughter came out and she's like, oh, that's so great. Her daughter was serving in the choir 
And she was also uh, leading a sort of young kids small group. Mm-hmm. So everything was fine. Her church Bible study small group was fine with her coming out. And then she decided to be public about it on Facebook or Instagram, I think. Mm-hmm. And the next Sunday, she showed up to worship choir service. And they said, um, sorry, since you've come up publicly, we now our policy is now activated, basically. And you cannot lead worship and you cannot lead the children's small group anymore. What policy? So where did the policy <laughs> come point. from? Whoa. So Whoa. the Earth Point has a policy that you have to sign as a volunteer saying you will not be in a same-sex relationship. This girl was like 14. She was not in a same-sex relationship. She had just started to understand herself. And according to the mother, I mean, this is this is gets a little bit to he say, she say, they sure. never sign anything like that. Uh-huh. And the mother would have had to sign off because she was a, a minor. So it took, regardless, the reaction that her daughter felt was of surprise yeah. of, you have been so warm and receptive to my coming out this far. You've encouraged my gifts. You know, she was spending like at least 10 hours a week at church, going to multiple services, serving multiple ministries, like really devoted to her small group to bring her friends to church, bring her queer friends to church. Mm-hmm. And her mother, I think, just felt betrayed. Like, we invest in the church. We moved to this city to be in for this church. And we have tithes. We have tithes. I mean, that's interesting. Yeah. I really never thought about that. But yeah, because it's an investment. It's an investment. It's not, you know, where your money is, your heart is. Yes. Yeah. So the mother was just telling us, you know, her name is, a mother's name is Jennifer Rourke, that her daughter, it was the hardest month she had as a parent. Um, her daughter was suicidal. They had to make sure someone was monitoring her 24-7 or with her. And I think, obviously, you know, it sucks just to be to have that policy in the first place, but it sucks even more to have really poured your heart out for mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. that turns out was holding back something the whole, this whole time. We have a lot of stories similar to that of, of a friend of mine who was at Passion City Church who was told, you know, we're going to baptize you. She's like, great, I'm engaged to a woman. I'm really happy. I want to tell my story on stage. They're like, okay, it'll just take a while. And then one month passed, two months since, and the date, like right before baptism about to happen, the email and says, actually, we cannot do your baptism. And she's like, why didn't you just tell me that in the first place, you know? You do your baptism? Yes, because you, you disagree with our interpretation of scripture. And she she made a point and be like, you had a woman baptized who told a story about how she was divorced three times. And that was fine with you. But I couldn't tell a story of how I'm getting engaged to the love of my life and how I'm so happy to finally find a church that accepts me. And so there's so many stories like that where there's a culture of welcoming and yeah. inclusivity. And I think yeah. these pastors mean well at some level. Yep, yep. yep. Like they don't want to be, you yeah. know, Westboro Baptist. They're like, who, they who pride, them, they pride themselves of not being those fundamentalists. Yeah. But in some ways, it actually cause more harm by not being honest about the impact of the policies because they're too preoccupied potentially with their motivations. Let me just, I, I am getting clarity for the first time about this. <laughs> I am. It's like a big light bulb went off. So they are being culturally welcoming. Yes. While being systemically ex- not welcoming, yeah, and systemically exclusionary, yeah, welcoming with their voices and their bodies and their hugs and their their kind words from the pulpit. They might get coffee with your partner, coffee they might, with you your know, partner, <laughs> right, invite you over. Oh you know. my gosh! But when it comes to the structures yeah. and the systems. Literally kind of pushing you out the door. Yeah. Her daughter was told she could volunteer in the parking lot or in the like welcome team, but she couldn't be on stage. She couldn't be on stage. She couldn't be leading kids. Um, wait, you know. wait, go back to that parking lot. Thing again. <laughs> I think I missed that. Say that again. Yeah. Well, they, they just they, they were saying like, we're not saying you can't volunteer at all. We have so many other volunteer opportunities like 
parking lot. Like, oh, she can she can she volunteer, volunteer the parking lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yes. And so, like, backstage, you know, and not with kids. That's also another line that you see often that is drawn. Like, you can now, you know, what have you. So, can I just say real quickly? Oh my God, you guys. So, I, I mean, I remember the days when I used to say, "Being gay is not like being black because you can't choose to be black. You can't, but you can choose to be gay." I don't believe that anymore. I think I think science actually has just proven it. Science has just proven. There's a gene, folks. There's a gene, right? There's a gene. We got to, sure. there's a gene. We got to, sure, there's sure. a real gene that's there, right? So you can't choose it. So, so now with that understanding, I think I, what I'm hearing you say is that the LGBTQ community is actually literally experiencing the exact same kind of discrimination yes, inside yeah. churches that my own family, I mean, I can point to times where, I mean, I can point to my own experience. I tried to be a waitress, you know, in Cape May, New Jersey, which is the oldest Victorian city in the town, in the, in the country, the town in the country. And um, uh, I was, I couldn't, I was, I was waitress for one week. And then after that, I became a bus person again, because mm-hmm. they just don't like having black waiters in, in Cape May. That was at least, in, you know, back in the eighties, Yeah, that's how it was. Or my grandmother, my great grandmother, when they found out she was passing for white for a while, and then they found out that she was black and they put her in the kitchen mm-hmm. and she worked in the kitchen as a baker for the rest of her life where she could not be seen because people who were black were not allowed to work on the floor where oh. they could be seen. So it's really funny yeah. because now what you're saying is that that same M.O. is now working. It's 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 the way things work inside the the white evangelical church. But they would I don't think that. They're they're too not only too savvy to do that in yeah. terms of race, but actually now there's a, there's a there's a stated value for re, you know racial reconciliation and multi ethnicity, and so everybody wants to have the black person they can put on their brochure, right? What I'm hearing from you is that in some ways because LGBTQ uh, identity is not as obvious and there's not as much of a value for that inclusion. In fact, there's not a value for that inclusion. That old 1950s, 1940s, 1960s MO that used to happen to black folks is happening to you silently. Yep. And sometimes use the some people think I use too harsh language when I call it a form of policy segregation. But if one set of policies apply to one population and another set of policies apply to other population, you essentially have a two tier citizenship or, you know, two tier polity. polity. Mm-hmm. So, yes. Wow. All right. So what is the cost of the lack of clarity on people? What what cost do they bear? I think we've kind of gone into that. But can you take us a little deeper? Yeah. So I'll pick it up with a, a story that kind of piggybacks off the last question, too, but goes into this of, of, of why not inclusion or, or justice. So at East Lake, several months, probably three months before uh, we made our formal statement, uh, a good friend of mine, Christina, who was on our staff. So I'm the executive pastor. She's a worship leader at one of our locations in Seattle. Um, she calls me and and my wife and um, comes over to our house with our other friend, Ayla. And uh, the two of them come out to us uh, as a couple who's in love before they come out to anyone else. And as someone who's on our staff, this is, happens on a Saturday night on my couch. And, you know, leading up to that moment, our staff had been in several conversations for, I'm talking about years now, where we're, we're reading Matthew Vines's book, we're, we're going through the, the process of, of changing our minds and, and debating these, these discussions and really having a lot of um, conversations behind the scenes. And so for someone like Christina, she would have been in those, in those conversations. And so 
Um, she, when they come out to us, you know, my wife and I respond with great joy and love. These are two people that um, have become really part of our family up until this point. Ayla um, had actually become our, our kid's nanny. And, and again, working with Christina um, week in and week out just kind of made the four of us like really close. And so, of course, we're, we're stoked for them. We're really excited. We had our suspicions that they were probably in love and just hadn't uh, admitted it to themselves yet. And so it was this this beautiful moment that was immediately followed up by Christina crying. Right. And and um and I'm like puzzled. I'm like, what's going on? Why are you <laughs> are, are those happy tears or and and finally Ayla interrupts and she says, she thinks you're going to fire her. She thinks that her job is is over. She thinks she thinks she's not going to be able to sing tomorrow is what she said. And that's that was a moment that that I think really broke me in a lot of ways because up until that point we really were just talking about inclusion and oh isn't this going to be great. But I think I think that really revealed that inclusion was kind of a short-sighted goal at the end of the day. Um, because if Christina didn't feel safe and if Christina was confused about where we're at, then that means everybody was, um, and and everybody like had no idea where we were. If if someone who was on the inside, not just on the inside and and you know privy to the conversations, but relationally on the inside too, um, and was worried, it was uh, it was just an eye opener. Like wow, we have not been clear as as much as we think we've been clear, and as much as. We've sort of leaned into our good intentions for going down this road of, oh my gosh, aren't we, aren't we so great to include people in the church, like patting ourselves on the back. We forgot to actually tell anyone about our process. And, uh, and I think that that ended up hurting us. And so the cost of, of not being clear as we would discover was that people felt like they were betrayed a little bit. Uh, felt like they were they were lied to, and, and this this goes uh, this happens across the theological spectrum. You know, this is why I Wait, think. Wait, very quickly. I think I might have just missed something. So, who felt lied to? Who oh, felt betrayed? Sorry, yes, that's a good thing. I should. I should that's okay. Just want to make sure. <laughs> so after after our announcement um, in January 2015, our church was probably about 4,200, say 4,000 people on a Sunday across seven locations in the Seattle area, and becoming um, becoming fully inclusive immediately cost us about 50% of our attendance, about 50% of our budget. Um, and you know, people left and few, very few people specifically cited, Oh, I'm leaving because I disagree with your theological position on LGBTQ inclusion because no one wants to say that. Right. Most people said, I didn't like the rollout. I didn't like the way, you know, it happened. This came out of nowhere. Now the church is losing money. This isn't good financial stewardship, like any re- anything that they could hang their hat on besides having, having to actually confront their own theology and, um, and all that. So there, there's a lot happening there, right? There, there is the, there is the reality of, Oh yeah, there's, there's some truth to that. You know, we, we probably could have found uh, a more transparent way to go through our process as, as leaders. And, um, I think, I think there's, there's a lot again of repentance still from that. It's like, Hey, don't make that same mistake. Just be clear with people. Even if, cause one of our options on church clarity is actively discerning, which means even if you don't know exactly where you're at right now, the fact that you're discerning your position uh, just being able to say that is a form of clarity as well. So, oh, that's really good. 
Wow. I mean, I, I honestly just, I just like had a aha moment. I was thinking, I mean, think about this. The, one of the big reasons why people, I mean, even one of the reasons why I didn't actually even want to write that chapter is because I didn't want to have clarity because having clarity meant that I was, and also write it down in a book where it'd be able to be, you know, searched in a library forevermore because then you have to be held to it and then you're accountable for it. And then there's a possibility of loss because of it. So I think that the thing that is striking to me, the thing that just clicked was that, that the, what, what are we afraid of losing? Yep. What is it we're afraid of? Are we afraid of losing money? Because ultimately, that is literally the number one reason why I hear that people are afraid to actually make it. Because the reality is you're going to lose money either way. Maybe not as much money. Maybe not as many people when you make when you become clear, if you are clear on the traditional side, because you might have more people, particularly in the evangelical church, who will stick with you with that kind of a thing. But you're going to lose. You're going to lose a lot of other people, too, particularly um, possibly a lot more people of color and possibly a lot more. Um, well, definitely a lot more people who are in that LGBTQ community. So I think what's what's difficult is you are literally making a choice of who is more okay to lose. Hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Who and mm-hmm. how yes. much more, how much money is okay to lose? A price tag in some ways per life yeah. that you're willing to pay. Yeah. Uh, it's more than just money. If you're, if you're someone who's in a, a position of church leadership uh, on the financial front, I actually think it's Clarity takes a, a hit at the uh, at the currency itself, right? At, at what the church that is um, ambiguous, what that church is peddling. Um, to be clear, you're not just going to lose money. It's not like people are just going to be like, "Oh, you support LGBTQ people now, I'm out." You're you're actually losing your ability to uh, manufacture this thing that people can buy for you know 10% of their income. Because once you start pulling apart the the sort of house of cards that is our, our belief structure, you pull one of those those cards out, the entire thing starts coming down. And so um, while it is about LGBTQ inclusion, when we're talking about that specific conversation, I think the stakes are much higher as to what it means when you let go of that that one thing. The whole the whole economy starts getting called into question. Now that is really deep. That is actually literally worthy of its own episode <laughs> to go into. But can you can we just go into that for a second? Because sure. I mean, you're not saying that when you pull this one thing, the faith itself falls apart, right? Are you? No, not at all. Okay, so when you call what's what's the house of cards? What's what are the structures? What are the the things, and I think you're particularly talking within the evangelical context, if I'm right, right? So mm-hmm. what is it that when you pull this one thing, it, what comes down? It's, I think, the the people who police the boundaries of, the, of our belief um, start losing credibility and, and start losing authority. And so that's, that's what I think starts getting eroded. When you start telling people, well, actually you know, gay people are just fine. They're happy. They're living their lives. Uh, let's leave them alone. And it becomes that simple. It becomes like, oh yeah, I can't believe I didn't uh, realize that. I can't believe how many books I had to read to, to arrive there. There's, I think this overwhelming sense of like, what else are, am I being lied to about? 
You know, this is supposed to be the most trustworthy institution on planet Earth that I'm coming to with all my faults and I'm coming to bare bones and I'm quote unquote laying down my life for. And you just straight up lied to me about something pretty simple. Um, what, what else, you know, and, and you just start going down that rabbit hole and the old warning of it being a slippery slope is, is true in a lot of ways. I mean, I think for many of the best reasons, but I think what you can be left with, um, at the end of all that is still hope is still even a, tr a tradition, um, uh, of, of faith that, you know, people have been bearing witness to for millennia, um, that has nothing that has nothing to do with gatekeepers telling you what you can and can't believe in order to be a part of the thing. Like that was just never the way that it worked. Can I just, I mean, man, I'm like having, I really am having like light bulbs everywhere in this conversation. And, and Sarah, I want to hear from you as well. I, I just had another light bulb. Could it be that the house of cards is white patriarchy? Yes. That when you pull that one, that house of cards come tumbling down. Because mm. I'm thinking like just recently, I think it's like Franklin Graham, you know, like came out with barrel slinging towards um, Pete Buttigieg, Buttigieg mm -hmm. saying, oh, you're in sin, whatever. And Buttigieg, you know, slotted him like a fly, which was really kind of fun to watch. <laughs> <laughs> and then they did a poll and they did a poll of evangelicals. And what they found was most evangelicals weren't buying Graham. Mm -hmm. They weren't buying it. They were just not, they're not really interested in it. And that means a power has fallen. Yes. Like he is a power. He's, he's what they call a power within the evangelical constellation. And so here you have a power center, somebody whose voice has had authority on an issue that has been a no brainer. He speaks that no brainer and people are like, not, not buying it. Yep. That's a big deal. Yep. And Sarah. I yeah. think getting back into the gatekeepers, if we think about within the Christian tradition, particularly in, uh, within America, America and the West, who have been the interpreters of scripture, who have been the church fathers we've looked to? Um, there have been many church fathers who are not white or European, but the ones we, but in, the, in our canon, they are, you know, they are painted as such. So there's that, but there's also, I think, if you look at historically, and this is kind of a particular area of research I'm interested in, mm -hmm. as the church and different colonizing forces moves around to Southeast Asia, Latin America, North America, um, there tends to be a trend in which um, uh, of the church more or less eliminating or marginalizing non-binary, gender fluid, or people who practice like same-sex sexuality, whether you're looking at so today, more than half of countries who penalize gay sex do so due to British colonial laws that were put on their books. Wow. Yeah. So Britain has, you know, legalized their same-sex marriage and whatnot, but they passed on outdated software that they've updated, but people are still working with, like, you know, the old legal tools that were forced upon them. And and arguably, I'm, I'm from Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia has this rich history of tolerance and respect for gender fluid people and for same-sex relations. Um, that gets really gets starts to get undercut when colonialism wow. enters, um, modernity enters, and a variety of other factors. So, yes, white patriarchy in in a very large sense. Historically. Oh my gosh! Yes. And I mean, let me just say that that's also found with regard to gender justice all over the world, wherever mm -hmm. colonizing forces have come. 
and nations have been colonized, they've also instituted not only racial hierarchies, but also hard gender hierarchy mm-hmm. that once the once the colonizers have left, those those hierarchies still are there yep. and actually still being worked in order to find a sense of power between the genders in that nation yep. of all of the same race. Right. Mm-hmm. So so L- the LGBTQ commu- community was also kind of caught up in the colonizing forces, what you're saying. Wow. I never really thought of that. That's deep. Totally. I think gay men threaten men's masculinity, cis men's masculinity. Gay women threaten men's masculinity, but they threaten the gender binary because you're supposed to marry this person and procreate. Trans people obviously threaten this boundary. So I think it's inherently an emasculating effect that has on cis straight white men, which is why I think Trump is a very potent figure because he represents a remasculation of America. Ooh, Lord of Jesus. At least that's how I read it. We're getting a little off of our church clarity now. But, <laughs> no, 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 no. This is, we're not, this is all clarifying. This is all clarifying. This is all clarifying. Let me say, <laughs> walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thinking Cap is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment we find ourselves in, full of protests, anger, and activist momentum, Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. So, Sarah, how is your work connected to power and also like your theory of change around all of this. Sure. Alan power and George can do theory of change. Okay. For us, I think we're fundamentally about taking power from institutions and moving it to the people. And one of the currencies of power is information. So how does that play out? When there's an asymmetry of information, when I know something, I'm not telling you about it. I have more power than you. Mm-hmm. And I create the conditions in which there's ambiguity, which means I can be manipulative. Mm. So if I know I was talking to a pastor um, in Southern California and it was a non-affirming church, they had that policy, but they didn't make it public. And a gay man had applied for a lay counseling program that the church had set up and the elders were like freaked out. You know, we can't accept him, but we don't want to tell him we can't accept him because he's gay because we're near a gay town you know, Palm Springs, what have you. Mm -hmm. So we're just going to tell him that we haven't gotten to his application yet. We're going to put his thing at the bottom of the pile. And so he doesn't have the tools to fight back because he doesn't even know what's happening. Um, So when you hoard information, there's no accountability. No one can say, well, you said this, so now I can have a conversation with you about it. Now we can maybe vote on it, have coffee about it. But if you take it off the table, then we cannot even discuss it. And I then have full freedom to sort of do what I want because I operate in the dark. So, mm-hmm. and doesn't the Bible say sin happens in the dark? Hello, somebody. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, if we're talking about the church, shouldn't we be trying to shine light? Yes. Yes. Whatever is hidden shall be made clear. Right. Yeah. 
Now, what about what about this other piece, George, that you were going to talk about? Yes. So our, our theory of change, I think people can get lost in a little bit. I, I mentioned earlier when, when we get asked, well, so what's what's your goal behind all this? And when we answer as, as simple as, as clarity, what we're saying is we think that everybody can agree that clarity is reasonable. That's why it's our tagline. Whether you're a conservative Christian who believes that the Bible says that, you know, what uh, marriage is between one man and one woman, but you're willing to be clear about that. Um, you can agree that clarity is reasonable. And uh, obviously we've already seen and demonstrated how that happens. Um, if you take a more affirming position now, there is this, there's this massive middle, uh, group that I think is, being animated by, I think the term you use for Franklin Graham, a power or, or whatever, that, that level of, of power is, is animating, I think, a uh, false majority. I, I don't actually think that there's that many people who, who would, uh, when, when it really came down to it, when they actually sat down and clarified for themselves, okay, what do I think about this? What do I believe? What are my convictions? I don't think that that group would be as, as, uh, loud as they seem. Um, and so us by delivering clarity, I think that alone will create change. It already, it already is. I think we're exposing the condition of fear in the church. Uh, and we're hopefully causing people to question like, what are you, what are you so afraid of? Why won't you just answer the question? Hillsong? Why won't you just answer the question, Andy Stanley? Like, it's it's going to be fine. You know, just land somewhere so that people know what to expect. And people throughout the whole spectrum, you know, this last story with Andy Stanley, um, uh, he, he ended up, him and I ended up having a phone conversation about it. And um, because he was really concerned, he wanted an opportunity to comment. And, you know, at the end of the day, there wasn't anything that, that, that he contributed to, to the story that changed it at all. But what was interesting was what he was sharing, the, the feedback that he's getting from his church is coming from people throughout the theological spectrum. Because when, when you're in that ambiguous spot, there's people who are in the queer community who are like, yeah, why don't you tell you know tell us where, where we stand? And then there's people who are on really conser- on the conservative end who are like, yeah, you're gonna condemn this, right, Andy? And so um, we're sort of squeezing that condition out, that condition of ambiguity that's allowing these false narratives to to prevail. Um, that's that's kind of our theory of change, and it takes a coalition. I think it takes a group of both individuals uh, who are willing to be clear with their convictions and churches who are willing to be proactively clear to create that, that positive peer pressure in a sense. Um, And all just basically say, yep, clarity is reasonable. Let's start there. Like Sarah said earlier, harm reduction model. Um, Let's, let's even the playing field and then see where things go. So like, I think one of the things that's striking me about this conversation, and actually, especially the last several minutes of it, that Sarah, you said earlier, something that still sticks for me, you said that power, when people hold information back, um, they are holding power. And one of your goals is in many ways to kind of democratize power, to, to, yeah. to put it out there, to make the power with the people as opposed to with the institutions. But I actually, I want to say, you know, I'm not sure, let's put it this way, institutions then don't have any reason to cooperate with you. No. 
like, why would they cooperate with you? Because you're trying to take away their power, right? And that's not, that's, it feels like, you know, it feels like, okay, well, then we're at war. But that's, it kind of feels like, oh my God, then we're setting up a, a, a somebody's gonna, somebody's gonna go down, another person's gonna be Victor um, situation. And maybe that is the case. And if that's the case, then that's the case. But I'm not sure it has to be that way. And, and and the reason why I say that is because of something that George just said. George, you were just talking about theories of change. That's right. The theory of theory of change. And that you, you know, what you're doing is you're kind of putting a squeeze, right? Like by by creating, by by shining light creating the need for people to be clear and and therefore in many ways kind of pushing pushing change by doing that what if what if we can think of it in this way if we thought of it as a choice between that institutions have between hoarding power or giving love yep right like if the paradigm is a paradigm of power well, then there has to be a loser and a winner. But if if you change your paradigm, the glasses that you have to see the whole thing through, especially for those institutions that are the church, and the church is fundamentally about, supposed to be about love, because God is love. James tells us that God is love. So if we are if we are operating out of a center that is all about hoarding power, then we are not operating from a center that is going toward God. Yeah, no, I'd agree. I think our message inherently is non-threatening. It is only threatening to people who are trying to be protect the institution. And what I try to do with pastors or when I talk to individuals is to say, in some ways, the work of becoming clear is a spiritual exercise. Well, we see real quick, though, because I mean, I don't want to push back on you here. Let's be real. We're having a real conversation because institutions exist to protect themselves. Institutions exist to exist. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you're never going to get an institution that volunteers to crumble. Like, it just is not going to happen. So what if what if the understanding of how to protect that institution Mm. was to love? Yes. No, that's that's totally fair. And I think we can always say. I think that to not be clear is never always the loving thing to do. Mm-hmm. And that if you're just honest and look in the mirror in some ways and be like, um, I have these intentions, I might be on this journey, but currently this is what's going on. This is where I believe. So these are my policy convictions. Mm-hmm. Based on that, what is the most loving thing to do? Mm-hmm. And I think once you ask that question, you're in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then you're going in the direction of God, right? Yeah. And and if you're supposed to be an institution that, that stewards the ministry of God in the world, then you at the very least have to be stewarding love. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's so good. I, I also think to your point, Lisa, about it not being so adversarial to the church, because at the end of the day, you know, the way we use that word church obviously is very um, problematic at times and people mean different things by it. But I do think at its best, the body of Christ um, living into its full potential looks like people being empowered as Sarah was saying, but perhaps in the future hope that we have or the future iteration or wherever things are headed with the church, because we all can't deny that things are changing very quick, very quickly. We're, we're headed into sort of new, uh, a new container, new wineskins, whatever language you want to use, like the current structure is not working. And so when we talk about the, um, I guess, sustainability of the institution, 
I don't, I don't think the church as an institution, if it is the people, if it is the body of, of universal Christ consciousness, I don't think that's going anywhere. And I don't think we pose a threat to that. In fact, I think that is sort of the, the idea that we are trying to give power to. Um, so it's not take it away from the pastors and give it to the lay people. That's not what we're about. It's, it's let's, let's right size the power dynamic so that the church is a conduit of love, as you're saying that, but that people are at the helm, that the, the people in mass and the, and the will of the people is what prevails, not the interests of, you know, the religious elite who uh, are incentivized, quite frankly, to, like you're saying, hoard their power and, and hoard power. Exactly. So, so George, for, and actually in Sarah too, cause you're at Forefront Church for pastors who want to move toward more clarity, um, but they're afraid. What steps would you recommend to move their congregations toward embracing clarity? So I would say that, um, it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when, and that has nothing to do with church clarity. Don't, don't, don't hear that as a threat. That's just a matter of reality. Like it's going to catch up to you. You know, you're, you can't stay ambiguous forever. It will catch up to you. Uh, one of these stories, you know, these stories that we publish are just heartbreaking. And so you, you don't want be, be motivated to not have one of these stories, uh, happen in your congregation and, uh, not because it's going to be embarrassing when it comes to light, but because people are actually getting hurt. Be motivated by love. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Love for the least, if nothing else. Exactly. Um, So I would just say to, to, to approach it in a way where you don't immediately feel threatened or scared and, you know, recognize that this is a movement largely led by people who have ministry backgrounds, have church backgrounds, even our volunteer corps, you know, 90, 90 plus people from around the world in our Slack channel scoring churches. A lot of them were high up in church ministry in some way, shape or form. And so they understand the value of this work. This isn't a gotcha. This isn't, we're not trying to tear down the church burn it down. We love the church. Like I'm actually, today's good Friday in the Coptic church. I'm getting ready to go to, to service with my parents tonight. Like there's a lot of beauty left, but we have to clarify because right now, Franklin Graham speaking on our behalf. Well, Sarah, I have a question for you. Have you seen examples? And I say this because you are really the digital organizer person who is out there with the with, you know, on the ground or, or getting more of those stories. Have you seen examples of churches that have chosen clarity and it led to greater health in the church? I, you know, I think the stories I get are more from individuals um, trying to think through whether I've gotten stories more from pastors who've gone through the journey I can honestly, I can only just really think of my church where we're in process of becoming firm. We weren't fully clear about that because we weren't ready. We essentially got financials in place and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to my pastor about it and I asked him, so during that middle period, now we're clear, but that middle period in which like it wasn't super clear that, you know, someone could get baptized, someone could lead. Do you regret that? Or do you feel like that was a necessary stage? You know, he's growing pains. You can't just come out of the gate. Mm-hmm. And I thought he would say like, oh, no, it was a necessary stage. You know, I'm, I'm a young person. I don't know what it's like to run a church. Like I'm the older, wiser pastor. Mm-hmm. But what, I was surprised when he said, actually, I do regret that because mm-hmm. I don't think I grasped then that every second in which we are not being clear, we are sending a negative message. There's no neutral ground that's it because yeah. the automatic assumption people are going to have to come to church is that the church is not going to like me it's going to prohibit me so unless i say something positive that's the message you're going to walk away with and there's too much there's too much at stake 
to not be clear. Wow. And a lot of now this is for you, particularly a lot of LGBTQIA people have left the church altogether. Mm-hmm. Right. Because yep. they've been hurt. They've actually been damaged by trying to run through that maze and running into a bunch of walls that are invisible um, too many times. And yet. You chose to lean in, you know what I mean? Like now you're a leader in your church, you know, forefront church. And what led, I would just, I'm wondering, like, what is it that led you to continue to engage in the church rather than giving up? It's a good question. I do wonder that myself sometimes. <laughs> um, I, I think, you know, like most things, it's not rational. I think, you know, um, my parents moved to America to start a church. We're originally from Malaysia, mm-hmm. um, Malaysian Chinese, and had a lot of problems in my dad's church. I disagreed with how he planted his vision of ministry. Mm-hmm. But I felt I'm also the oldest child that if there was a problem, it was my responsibility to fix it before I could safely move on. Mm. That that can mean a little savior complexy type stuff. And <laughs> dynamics between my father and I were not great, <laughs> if you could probably guess, in terms of trying to build a church together. Sure. But I think I still retain some of that sense of like, I am a Christian because this is the community I belong to. It is a community to which I feel responsibility for and a community to which it can hold me accountable. And that is something I don't think that will ever leave. So that motivates my work. Wow. Wow. Here's a question for both of you. We'll wrap up with this. Do you have hope for the church? That's a good question. That's one I've been, I've been working through quite a bit lately. And, um, so it's funny today, again, it is good Friday in the Coptic church. I haven't been in a really long time. Um, well, I mean, I haven't been to a good Friday service. I popped in and out to say hi to my parents and lately I'm finding that the, that the, beauty of the Coptic tradition is giving me hope. And it's funny because, um, on paper, they would be a clear, non-affirming, clear, non-egalitarian, like the most sort of conservative theological church you can find. It's the oldest church on, on, on planet earth. Um, but what they do week in and week out is they uphold this, this tradition, this ritual that's been happening for a couple thousand years, as far as we know. And, I think I'm finding hope in the fact that it's the tradition that I, I sort of hang on to that's, that's meaningful and has value. This, this message of love and hope and self-sacrifice. Um, and I think before, you know, when I sort of left, when I left the Coptic church and my, my posture in general has been, um, a lashing out towards the, the actual people, the imperfect people who are tasked with upholding the tradition generation after generation, right? The conduits of my parents, my priests, the people who I experienced in their full humanity, right? And their, in their sin and took that out on the church, took that out on the tradition. And I think now I'm coming back to this, uh, realization that, you know, it's, it's really humbling to go to church and to, put on a, uh, a Tonya, a robe and, and stand up at the altar and sing a song like, like chants and to recite a, a, litur- a liturgy that a liturgy that's been recited for, for all these years, um, that does something to you as an individual. And so, um, I'm finding, I'm finding hope in the fact that that still happens, that, that that's still sort of presently, like right now, all week, there was, you know, there was services uh, for, for Holy Week. And um, I'm still in process. I think I'm in this moment where I'm comfortable with my own, like, 
I don't know. I don't know what Sunday services are anymore. That's what I just said was kind of like the best articulation I have of it. Um, I do think that everything does need to change if there is going to be any light at the end of the tunnel for the church. But uh, I do have hope for sure. Wow, that's really good. It pushes in me one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately, which is I think that in very many, um, not in very many, in very significant ways, the Western church, the church itself was colonized. Yes. And actually, and actually the faith itself was colonized in the Western church. So I do, I, I, I understand you on a very, on a gut level that everything must change because I think the practices that we've come to, um, to see as normative are actually normative for Northern European churches, <laughs> yes, exactly. um, but they were, they were imposed on the entire world as being Christian, exactly. but the church is not Western. Nope. There's, you know, and, and not patriarchal. Hmm. So think about that, like Junia, boom, that's all you need to say, just Junia, boom. You know what I mean? And yeah. so I love that, that you have hope in the, in the reality that everything must change. And I think I have hope because I think everything can change. Yes. How about, how about you, Sarah? Yeah, it's, I think it's a hard question for me, particularly when thinking about a global church, because the church movement I came up through and through most of my younghood, childhood and teenagers was a church movement that's based in Asia. So it was founded in Bangkok and my parents were church planters through it. And you know, there's a reason why they sent us to America to like save America in part. That's awesome. Um, and, so as much as I really admire a lot of the church and its founder, it's it had a very somewhat fundamentalist way of reading the Bible. Uh, women could kind of lead, um, but certainly like gay stuff was out of the question, what have you. And it was also very interested in evangelism and converting people uh, from different faiths and different religions in a way that even though it's carried out by people who look like the people they're converting, yeah. but the the theological architecture of that certainly came from Australia, the UK, Europe. You know, my parents would focus on the family. They would sing songs by Hillsong. Mm -hmm. The founder of the movement came to faith in an Australian sort of context. So the bodies are people of color, but the theology sometimes is not. And I was struck by this when observing the United Methodist General Convention, just to bring it back to what yeah. we were talking in the beginning, because a lot of the opponents of the Simple Plan and the One Church Plan were delegates from outside of America who were using, you know, anti-imperialist, anti-colonial arguments for their work. Mm. And it was just, I think, it, it's personal for me because in some ways I often wonder if my parents were not Christian, would they be more accepting mm. or would they be more affirming? Certainly there are plenty of Malaysian and Chinese parents who are not religious and are still very anti what have you. But um, because the language from my parents is so biblical, it kind of helped that. I just kind of helped to think that. Mm -hmm. And I think what gives me hope in some ways is one, realizing that there is a history uh, that I mentioned earlier that predates in some ways the church that, that is still true to who we are, um, that is very queer and very um, tolerant and respectful of queer traditions. And particularly, oftentimes you'll see queer people in positions of religious authority mm -hmm. who are the shaman and the priest. But I think also... 
I think I find hope just from being among people who are doing kind of the work in the church. Um, I recently came from a Pacific Asian Women's Theology and Ministry Forum mm-hmm. um, that was hosted in Atlanta by some of the leading kind of post-colonial Asian feminist scholars mm-hmm. from all around uh, both the Pacific Islands and East Asia and Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And I was just, you know, some of these women were the first in their field to get a PhD in Hebrew literature um, as an Asian woman. And they're 70 years old. Uh, some of them have sorts of internment camps when they're children. And I think I was just sort of like in awe of, you know, I don't know how much I affiliate myself with the church at large, but I can certainly affiliate myself with these people. And I think that's what gives me hope. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road Podcast is recorded at the studios of the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road Podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work on our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates. We promise we will not flood your inbox. That actually is for real. We really won't. We invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop around the first day of each month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road.